Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hello, my name's Shireen Kerr and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm James Boston and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bafo Ababio and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Jameel Amaraji and you listen to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Akwa and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Jala Amir and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Chelsea Coomson and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, my name is Laura Marvin and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. How's your week going? Hope it's going well. For me, it's definitely been a very, very busy week, a lot going on at work and outside of work. And of course it is Baby Loss Awareness Week too, which brings me great pleasure in announcing today's guest. I am joined by Priya Vara. Priya is going to be talking to me about her son, Shayan. She gave birth to Shayan at full term. Shayan was born sleeping. In this episode, we talk about diversity and loss. Obviously, that's a very important topic for me, all of my guests and our listeners about how cultural barriers can be broken down. And also we talk about statistics. Obviously, I don't like to treat things as statistics because we're all human beings and we're all individuals. You know, we're all mums, brothers and sisters and siblings and friends and family. You know, we are more than a statistic. But when people are impacted disproportionately, I do feel it's, it is, you know, important to look at why certain things happen, who's being impacted the most, kind of what the challenges are and how we can contribute to that conversation with hope that we can make change. You can find Bereavement Room on social media. The handle is at Bereavement Room on Instagram and Twitter. Please do give us a follow, do write DMs, letters. I love hearing from you. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I'm thrilled to say today's guest is Priya Vara. As you all know, this week is Baby Loss Awareness Week. Priya has kindly joined me to talk about her son, Shayan. Hi, Priya. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you so much for joining. How's your week going? I know you've had a lot on with Baby Loss Awareness Week. Yeah, I think the run up to this week is always difficult because you're trying to kind of balance everyday life along with the various things that you see over social media about the week coming. And I sometimes think the build up can be really emotionally draining. Um, and it has been a bit this year. I don't know whether it's just more noise. And you'd, more noise in a week like this is really good. So, you know, mm. we're, we're noise. But I think the emotional burden of that on people who have lost, you know, it can be quite intense. I think a social media break after this week is going to be necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm starting to see our our feeds are quite busy this week. And I guess it can be very triggering when it's one post after the other. And sometimes we do need to pause. Um, But I think it's great that we are highlighting such a silenced topic. 
which kind of um, brings me to ask you, you know, my, my audience love to know where people are from, what they do, what their interests are. So yeah, um, give us an insight into yourself. Yeah, so I live in London. Um, I am a wife, I'm a mother. Um, in my day job, I work in the pharmaceutical industry, um, working on product labeling. So, you know, I've kind of got a science background. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit later because that's what makes going through grief a little bit difficult, I think. Um, mm. I love yoga and anything healing. So I'm really into Reiki and crystals and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and all of that has had to do with the loss, I think. I've gotten more, more spiritual, I think, than anything else. So that's a bit about me. Lovely. And you, and you mentioned yoga there. Um, is it hot yoga that you do or any specific sort of yoga that you find no. out? Now I'm doing a bit of a mix of yoga and Pilates, actually. So after my last pregnancy, I did find it's taken its toll on my body. Um, I think the mixture of, you know, breastfeeding and not really thinking about how you're standing or sitting or even sleeping sometimes, um, it can really, you know, cause havoc with your back and your tummy areas and things. So I have found these strengthening exercises through Pilates, which has really helped just to kind of engage my core again, which is always good. Amazing. I haven't done yoga in a while, but I was addicted to hot yoga for a oh. bit. It was just really good when you come out into the air outside after. It's just, it's, yeah. I think it was really addictive. <laughs> it can it, be really. It is in a good way, in a good way. Um, yeah. But it's been a while, so I probably need to get back into it when the whole coronavirus thing settles next year. So this kind of, um, you know, I just really appreciate you you joining me today to talk about your son um, and also diversity and loss and breaking the baby loss silence and those uh, cultural barriers that we face in our communities. Um, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Shay and, you know, what the planning stages look like, celebrations, baby names, anything that comes to your mind. Yeah, so I, so I had, we had a bit of a journey with pregnancy. It took us a while to, to get pregnant in the first place. And before I got pregnant with Shay, and I should say that, you know, I had a daughter already. So I, you know, I have a now six-year-old. Um, so she's my eldest. And about five months before I got pregnant with Shay, and I actually had a miscarriage. Um, so, and that was at 12 weeks. So it was an early pregnancy, but you know, nonetheless, it was still a loss. Um, so then five months later after that, I, I got pregnant with Shayan and it was a very different pregnancy to my first pregnancy. Um, I was sick from beginning to end of this pregnancy. It was mm. caused me havoc, if I should be honest. He, um, I, I just couldn't keep anything down. I was in and out of hospital throughout the whole thing just because, you know, I couldn't control the sickness part of it. But apart from that, um, it was a, a, a low risk pregnancy. You know, I, I didn't have any health issues. There was no concerns with the baby. It was, it was all fine. He, he was fine, you know, up until mm. the minute. Um, in terms of prep, so I don't know what it's like in other cultures, but in our culture, we, we always get told not to prep 
as in, you know, you're tempting fate if you do that. And, you know, I remember even with my first, my mom saying to me, why are you getting a car seat? And I said, mom, they're not going to let me take the baby home from the hospital without one. Like, you know, there are some things that I have to have. So in terms of prepping with him, we didn't really do an awful lot. And, you know, we had everything from the first time. So in terms of buying things and we, we were set up at home already, you know, for his arrival. Baby showers and things, I'm not one who's that way inclined, to be honest. I, mm. I, I don't like that whole baby shower scene. So I didn't have one with any of my children, actually. Um, so we didn't do anything, you know, celebration wise. And baby name wise, we actually, so we didn't know Shane was a boy. Um, okay. When we discussed names, and I think it was about three days before we had him. So it was my eldest's birthday three days before Shane's yeah Uh, we had the family over and we were talking about names and I think we had lots of girls names in mind but we couldn't think of any boys names that we liked and then my sister-in-law actually said well how about the name Shane and we were like oh that's a really lovely name so I think we both kind of then had that in our head um and then obviously when he was born we were like yeah we have to go with this it's um he's definitely a Shane oh that's lovely that's really lovely and it is a very beautiful name so I I'm just curious to know because you talked about culture um and in terms of your culture you why are you celebrating so much um is when you say culture is that the Indian community in terms of having babies you wouldn't celebrate it so much until after baby is born or I think within our family it's just kind of always been that way and I think because my journey and you know how hard it was for us to become pregnant it was all very not like unspoken about it was just I liked keeping it low-key mm. so I, I just liked you know keeping it to myself and yeah. you know did I fuss about it I was just in my head I was like, until the babies are all are here I just kind of want to pretend that they're not there if that makes sense it does yeah With my I mean, pregnancy after loss is awful. Mm. So my last pregnancy, I was even more like that. I mean, no one even knew I was pregnant until I was about five and a half, six months pregnant. Mm. Um, I just, you know, if I had it my way, I would have flown to a desert island and come back after nine months um, Mm. because any attention on it. Um, But yeah, and I think when your journey's been hard, it's often hard to embrace and celebrate, you know, until until you can see that something's there with you yeah and that all is safe and healthy and yeah 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 I hear you on that um I think there's so many people that will be listening that will resonate with that um and it it sounds like you've just gone through this really difficult journey Uh, and I'm just curious to know in terms of you know, the baby loss that you have experienced. You said you were very, very sick with Shayan when you were pregnant with him. What were the hospitals like um, when you were in and out of hospital? Were they good? So with my Shayan pregnancy, and you know, I love our hospital. The midwives are great. But after you've had a first child, healthy, low risk, you kind of automatically get placed into the low risk bucket again. And because they you know, the stats show that you should be okay. So, and they're so busy, like these maternity units, they're overwhelmed with numbers and people. 
So, you know, unless there's something screaming out to them that something's wrong, you kind of just progress through your pregnancy. And it was a little bit on my own, to be honest. Um, you know, apart from going in every day and needing a top off of fluid because I'd been so sick, um, which they're used to seeing, that there was nothing else that was screaming out to them that was wrong. And I don't think anything really was wrong during my pregnancy. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think there were any indicators to say that, you know, something was going on that shouldn't be. My scans were all fine. Um, you know, the staff, they're, they're amazing there. They do, a, well, for me, they did a really good job. I mean, I know others have experienced differently, but, you know, in mine, I was perfectly happy with them. Mm. And, and we'll come back to those um, statistics a bit later on in the conversation. But um, just, it's great to hear that the hospitals were supportive at that time when you were in and out. I think that's really important part of the journey which kind of brings me to ask you in a way that is I know it's never easy and it's not not always a comfortable conversation to have but if you can kind of what did that day look like for you when you went into labour because you, you were full term when you went into labour is that right? Yeah so I was actually five days overdue and um I'd had a midwife appointment, you know, just as I was becoming overdue. So I think it was 40 plus two days or something. And they were going to do various um, procedures to try and, you know, induce me. And I had said, no, I, you know, I'd rather wait and just go into labor naturally. Um, so they respected that. And then it was about 40 days plus five, I went into labor and it was, you know, the middle of the afternoon, it was all very early. And I knew from my first child that, you know, stay at home for as long as possible. And I kind of knew what to expect. I was a little bit more comfortable going through the motions. So, um, you know, I managed to, you know, collect my eldest from nursery, bring her home, do dinner, do bath, do bed, you know, mild contractions. It was all very, I was in control of it. It was fine. And so we actually spent the whole night like that at home. So I was just, um, not having intense contractions. I was just managing them well, um, breathing, moving, that kind of thing. And then it got to the morning and I'll never forget it actually, because my parents had stayed over the night. We had told them to come just in case I needed to go into hospital in the middle of the night. I said, you know, someone needs to be here with Neva. So if you can come and then you can just spend the night here. So everyone woke up expecting us to have left for the hospital already, but we were still at home. Um, and Neva came downstairs. And by that point, you know, my contractions had gotten quite, quite severe. I could, you know, really feel they were very intense. Mm. Uh, and she kind of jumped on me and she was just like, oh, have I got a baby brother or sister yet? And I was like, the next time we see you, when you come back, you will have your baby brother or sister. <laughs> and I can't tell you those words. They haunt me to this day because it's just... I just remember afterwards thinking, my God, how am I going to go back and tell her that this has happened? And, you know, she was only three at the time. She was very young. Mm. But then um, at about nine o'clock in the morning, we said, right, let's head into hospital. You know, I think the contractions are, are closer together. They're definitely more intense. You know, I called the midwives to say we were on our way. And I actually still felt him kicking when I was at home. So he was definitely moving. As I said, nothing indicated that anything was wrong at all. Mm. Um, so then we got to hospital and I, I was literally crawling into hospital at this point because I was in a lot of pain. Mm. 
and they started to, you know, they took me straight upstairs. They started running their standard checks, you know, check my blood pressure, check my urine, everything was fine. Um, and then they put that Doppler on my stomach and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And like, that's quite normal because, you know, baby could be lying in a different position. It, you know, you might just not be able to get it. So they wheeled me down into the birthing room and um, this man walked in and he had one of those little scanners. Um, and there were quite a few midwives there at the time, but still, you know, no indication that anything was wrong. Um, mm. And then the man, he, he got the scanner and he kind of started scanning my tummy. And I'll just never forget the look on his face. His face just dropped. And I looked at the midwives and there were like five of them in the room and their faces just dropped completely. And I just looked at my husband and I was like, why are they all looking like that? And Gosh. the guy, I'm so sorry. And I looked at Kevin, I looked at my husband again, and I was like, what is he sorry about? And he was like, your baby doesn't have a heartbeat. Oh, gosh. And, and you know, remember, so I'm still in labor, right? So I'm still contracting. I'm still mm -hmm. in a lot of, and you're hearing these words, and I'm just, I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, uh, I don't get it. Like, how? I don't, under, I don't even believe what you're saying right now. And, and to be honest, I didn't believe it until I actually had Shane in my arms. I didn't believe that it had happened. I thought it was just a complete mistake, and they had just read everything incorrectly. And I think that's the part of you that holds on to the hope that there's still hope that he's there. Until he's out, there's still hope that he's okay. Yeah. Um, but then my husband, I was just in a state of shock. I don't think I even cried at the beginning. I just kind of was lying there going, I, I don't understand what you're yeah. saying to me. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. My husband kind of just started crying and, you know, it was his birthday on that day. So, oh, my so I have my eldest Neva is her birthday's on the 27th and then Shayan and my husband both fall on the 30th. Um, so August is a very intense month generally for us. But on that day, especially, it was, you know, he was just like, I, I don't even understand this. So then they were really great. I mean, I can't thank the midwives that day enough. I still keep in touch with them. I am forever grateful to them for how they handled that situation that day with us. Um, you know, there was nothing but love in that room. There really was nothing mm. but love. Um, so then, they, and they fall into, they very quickly go into the bereavement mode of, you know, they then try and prep you as much as they can yeah. for what happened. Um, because, you know, I still had to give birth. I still had to go through all the postnatal stuff, but just without a baby. Yeah. And that in itself, it, it's really difficult, you know, because, and I don't quite know what I thought was going to happen, but when she said to me, so you can have any form of um, pain relief you want to get the baby out. I just looked at her and I said, so wait, I've got to go through birth now. And I don't quite know what I expected to happen at that time, that I thought that the baby was just going to go away. I, I don't understand. But yeah, it was a really, really weird moment. Um, because of the shock, my body just shut down a little bit. So mm -hmm. the contract stopped. Um, they had to start inducing labor again just to get everything going. Um, and it was just, I, I was, you can't even, I, I can't. Horrendous. Yeah. It was horrible. Just those, 
hours in between of finding out and actually having to go through birth. They were just awful, awful. Um, our family all turned up to the hospital, um, you know, parents, siblings. Um, the what hospital, was that like? The, the hospital were really good with them. So they, although they don't have a bereavement suite, which we'll come on to later, mm. um, have a room and they had a room for my family to stay in that was just next door. And um, we kind of needed them. And I didn't realise how much until afterwards. But it was so nice to know that they were just that we're a really close family with both sets of parents, with our siblings. And it was just nice knowing that they were there. Um, I think for my family, what was hard for my mum is, so my sister-in-law was pregnant at the same time. Oh, and okay. we gave birth to her son three months after Cheyenne. Um, so mm. it was so, that was really difficult for mum in the, in the weeks afterwards, because, you know, she had various ceremonies and things that she had to do with my sister-in-law, but then she had me on this side who had just been through a loss and it was, it was quite difficult. God, it just sounds like there was, it just sounds horrendous. Like there was just so much that you had to go through in that moment. And I'm, I'm so glad that you had good midwives. That's one thing that I'm happy to hear. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest though, it's, my story is really rare. The, the horror stories that I hear are, are more common. And I don't know whether that's because people just speak about them more, but I feel very grateful that I had that support there. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And every woman should, um, because what a terrible thing, because you're just told now that there's no heartbeat and you have to give birth. And I really hear that in your voice, that that is just, I can't, you know, I don't know what was, what was going through your head at that moment. Like, how do you even comprehend something like this? And I just, I really, honestly, I feel for you, but thank you so much for kind of talking me through that, um, what that was like for you that day, which brings me on to statistics. Um, so they say in the UK, one in every 225 births is a stillbirth. So that is a baby born dead after 24 completed weeks. So I think that's about 3,500 babies dying every year or nine every day on average. What, what's your view on statistics? So the nine a day stat, and I, I know that lots is being done to try and address that statistic because frankly, in a country like ours where we have you know, great healthcare. Um, we have so much knowledge. We shouldn't have a stat that high. It, mm. it, it upsets me that we do. I think an even more alarming stat and something that I have been looking at a little bit more is around the cultural differences. So the fact that if you're Asian, you are double you have double the risk of losing a baby you know in the black community it's even more than that and five times I, yeah well those stats are a little bit more alarming not just because that they're there but because they've been there for so long and nothing has been done to address them I mean we've known that stat for a while that you know those 
differences in ethnicity can lead to a higher rate. Why are we not communicating that to people? I mean, so after we lost, I, I've spoken to hundreds of women, most of them of Asian background and, you know, from various channels. And, you know, the majority didn't know anything about counting the kicks, you know, monitoring your baby's movements, being in tune with that and understanding when there's something wrong. Most of them hadn't taken um, vitamins during their pregnancies, so antenatal care. Some of them hadn't even attended antenatal appointments, the routine ones that you get. Mm. And you asked, you know, did you know that because of your ethnicity, you're at more at risk of loss? The answer was always no. And, you know, when then asked, you know, if you had known that, would you have treated your pregnancy differently? And, you know, absolutely, yes. Everyone is like, That's yes. crazy. And, you know, what I don't understand is, you know, we do a really good job with communicating the fact that if you're older, you're going to be in a high-risk bucket. The fact that if you've got diabetes, you're going to be in a high-risk mm. bucket. Why can we not communicate this a bit better? You know, why put it out there a little bit more that mm. you are going to be in a more of a high-risk category because of your ethnicity? Absolutely. And why do you think that it is double for South Asian and five times more for black women? What do you think it is? Is it racism? Is it a problem within the, the clinical encounter? What do you think it is? So I think there's lots of factors around that. I think the education piece, so as I said, about monitoring your baby mm. and shouting if there is something wrong. As Asians, we're not good at doing that. You know, we <laughs> yeah in a world where covid is there right yeah um, if i think of a pregnant woman at home right now and if she was thinking well i think something might be wrong but i'm not too sure and actually because of covid i want to avoid a hospital at all, t- at all costs so it's probably just fine i think we all have a mentality like that um and we need to just change it a little bit just so that people feel more comfortable about reaching out for help if there is if they even slightly think that something's wrong Mm. And do you think that the health professional needs to do a bit more work on that? I mean, I realise that in our community it is a massive education piece, but is is it the responsibility a little bit of the health professional, I don't know, the GP or the midwife that you might have that's meant to be going through your pregnancy journey with you, the communication, you know, is there a bit of work to be done on the other side or not? Definitely. And I think they need to work on the way they communicate, to be honest. So in a lot of, again, you know, when you're speaking to somebody who where English isn't their first language. Oh, absolutely. You need to think about how you're communicating that person to get that message across. Yeah. You know, it's no in them bunch of liars or leaflets telling them what to look <laughs> at. They need the proper, you know, because that's what happens. You get this folder, you get a bunch of reading to do. And, you know, people like me will sit there and read it all. But not many people do it's mm. oh I'd rather not know and it will just be fine it mm. will all just be fine whereas if a little bit more work was done just to explain some of these risks um, explain some of the ways they could help with lowering that risk then I think we would maybe hit that nine a day number mm. you know if we just addressed this part that nine a day number is likely to come down 
Mm, it's because it's very high that stat was really shocking when I came across it it's very very high and I just wonder I mean you talk about language barrier there so because I've I've not had babies yet I'm just curious to know um the information that they do give you is it do they give information in other languages like Gujarati and Hindi and Bengali if anything in a different language I'm not sure if they saw that somebody didn't speak have English as their first language whether they would give anything else but I don't think so okay that's a shame because I know with diabetes and other you know health services that you might access for health issues they there's usually a leaflet with um if you need a translator these are the languages that we can offer that is actually really shocking to hear that that's not available for pregnancy I mean, might be but I haven't I can't remember seeing I mean maybe I just wasn't looking enough but I can't remember seeing it I know a lot of the baby loss charities are highlighting this and doing various things to mm. they are there are things available for people who don't have English as their first language but in terms of as a standard when you receive that pack I'm not sure mm. okay that's good food for for anyone that might be listening any health professionals uh, definitely get in touch if you are aware that there are translated resources and information in that pack do get in touch we do like to hear from you which kind of now brings me on to talk about the funeral if that's okay with you um what did the, the funeral of baby shane look like you know if you want to take us through that so the funeral day is by far the worst day of my life like worse than the day that we heard that we'd lost him mm. um there's there's one thing to be in a hospital room and be holding your dead baby it's a completely different thing when you have to put that baby into a box and watch him being lowered into the ground i i can't tell you as a parent how that is just the most unnatural thing you can ever imagine. Mm. In our culture, we would normally cremate um, when somebody has passed away. But because of the way Shayan died as a baby, and you know, the reason why we cremate is because we believe in reincarnation and the soul goes on to the next life and all that kind of stuff. They say when someone dies like Shayan did, you know, they haven't had any karma, they're kind of they're going to heaven basically. Um, so that's why we bury instead. Oh, okay, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So and I didn't know that at all. But obviously we've never had to bury anyone in our family so it was all just new to everyone so no one really knew what to do so we had to navigate through various funeral directors and you know try and try and get this done honestly I wanted to just hide for a few days and just wake up when it was all over because it's so intense I I, I wanted everything to be just perfect because mm. I did want to ever look back and think man why didn't I do that man why didn't we do this we should have remembered this so I put a lot of pressure on myself in making sure that everything down to what people were wearing was you know on point that day um so we I decided I wanted to go and get him ready um so we went to the funeral parlor and I got to change him and get him ready and all that kind of stuff yeah um, 
we picked out our the coffin that he was going to be in i planned lots of little things for him so for example when you leave the hospital after loss you get a box um it's a really lovely box and it's to keep all your memories inside so I've okay in there i've got his hand and footprints in there um and they give you like a little book and um, it's it's a book called guess how much i love you it's a really popular children's yeah. book yeah no, um, yeah and i had said that i wanted to read that to him on the funeral day mm. you know i letter i had these little charms made which i wanted him to have one i have i wear one around my neck and um i wanted my daughter to have one so i had a couple of charms with his name made up um i made him a rakri because you know raksha yeah. bandhan has always been a massive thing for me um and you know sorry i'm going to cry um i wanted him to mm-hmm. have his section wherever he was going and you know there were lots of different things we had a pillow made up for him um i wrote a poem which i wanted printed onto a blanket which i wanted to then wrap around him and you know and it was so funny because i have a cousin um who is more like a sister to me and she was there in the room when shane was born and literally she was that person in my life at that time who i would say something and it would just be done so i would be like i want this printed and the next day she would have done it you know i didn't even have to think twice about it mm. um so then we always associated rainbows with shayan um one of the main reasons for that is because straight after he died on the way home from the hospital that day we just kept seeing rainbows everywhere in the lead up to his funeral every single day i would look out and there would be a rainbow and we took it as a sign that he was saying i'm okay you know so we always associated those with him um so on his funeral day we decided to ask everyone coming and you know we kept it very small it was only our parents and our siblings there um everyone was wearing rainbow colors so you know the mums were had rainbow saris on everyone had a different color that they had we had the ties for the men um all of that what was different about the day though is when we were initially planning it we had organized just to be at the funeral parlor and then head to the um cemetery you know for for him to be buried and my best friend was here and she said to me so you're not bringing him home and i remember just looking at her and so in our culture we would always bring a body home and yeah. do funeral rites before heading yeah. off to a and i just looked at her and i was like i didn't even think about that oh my god of course i'm bringing him home like why would i not so then we had to change everything at the last minute so that he could come home first um and you know we didn't have to do any last funeral rites as such you know the priest said that we don't need to because of the way he was born and you know you don't need to rest his soul it's rested already um so we brought him home in the morning that feeling it's it's just so intense the lead up to his funeral i was literally being sick every day and even now i when it hits august hits that lead up to the day he died even the day of his funeral anniversary those emotions just come back in such a raw way that it's really difficult con- to control it you know your emotions just suddenly go back to that day and you remember so many things about it that it, it's hard to not let that consume you in terms of emotion 
So on the day, you know, we had the family here, he came home. I talked to him the whole time he was here, you know, showed him where his playroom would have been, you know, the things that he would have liked. Um, we sang to him, me and my husband did. Um, I read him that Guess How Much I Love You story. I read him our letter. Um, so we didn't have any kids at the funeral. Um, we just did, a, even my youngest daughter, she was only three at the time. You know, she went to nursery on that day. We didn't have any of the children there, my nieces, my nephews. Um, but they had decided they wanted to each give Shayan a toy, mm-hmm. something played with him. So we put all of that in the coffin. You know, there was a ball, there was a bunny, there was um, lots of different things that were kind of put in there. And then everyone who came, came with something small that they could put in the coffin to let him feel their comfort basically that's so thoughtful and so lovely yeah it was it was a really you know after the funeral it was almost like and you know again as soon as it finished there was this rainbow that appeared in the clouds just over the cemetery oh wow it was unreal the rainbow thing for us has been really something of comfort and even it it is even now it's um, still we still get hunting for rainbows uh, often um but that, after the funeral had finished, we went, we took everyone for lunch and it was such a release. Like just, it was just suddenly peaceful. I don't know whether you find this generally after funerals, but I do feel a sense of calm. Like even when grandparents have passed away and after, there's always this real intense build up, And then after a funeral, it feels as though everything's just calm again. Mm, it's reflective. Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely that sense that was there afterwards, I think, because all of those things have happened and, you know, you can just start to begin to grieve properly, I think. Mm. Because there's a lot to do when it comes to a funeral and you have to be in a certain state of mind, I think, um, to get stuff done logistically. It's it's a lot while, while you're trying to process the fact that your child has died, you know. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to go through and I'm just in awe of you the way that you speak and how you you know kind of led the funeral um, you know all the activities that happened that day I mean what was that like for you like how did you get through it was it sort of autopilot or did you have a lot of support around you like so our support network was incredible in terms of our parents uh, our parents mainly um, they they shielded us from a lot. Like, you know, the day that this happened, I remember, you know, people just tend, just want to come and pay respects and things like that. And my mum didn't tell me this. She told me afterwards, she got home from the hospital that day and she'd picked my daughter up from nursery and she was staying there with her that day. There was like people waiting outside her house to come and like pay respects or something. And she kind of was like, what are you doing here? I've got like a three-year-old who can't know anything's wrong right now. You need to go. And no, stop calling Priya. Leave her alone. Um, Just everyone needs to go and just, we'll call you in a few days. But they really buffered a lot of that, you know, the cultural stuff. Um, They buffered a lot of that for us. And, you know, I, to be honest, I didn't want to see anyone. And I, I, Mm. months before I did start seeing people, So the intensity of all of that was, I think, made a lot easier just because of that 
support network, the close support network that we had. You know, I always call them my people because there were a handful of friends, um, a handful of family, and then our immediate family who just, who almost just put this barrier around us and just stopped anything else from coming in, mm. um, which was great, you know, and I think that's where a lot of our strength came from. You know, I've talked about my cousin and support like that, everyone needs one arena, I say, because you, support like that is so important. You know, someone who you can just talk to and who will just get stuff done for you. I wouldn't have been able to do any of that funeral stuff without having her there kind of just doing it all while, while I spoke. Mm. and I think that's really important to have that safe space and the safe people the people as you say uh to coin that phrase I think that is very key in a in a time that is very sad and difficult which brings me to talk about um your bereavement support it's great that you had your support network did you get any external support from counsellors or the bereavement suite or no I I was really lucky. So they said to me at my GP surgery that I could be put on a waiting list for when they say official counselling, they mean a qualified counsellor, which would take maybe months to come through. Or actually my GP surgery has a bereavement support group. So it's run by volunteers and who have, you know, they're not counsellors, they're not qualified counsellors, but they have training in bereavement support. Mm-hmm. And I could be somebody more or less immediately if I chose that route. And I decided to go with that just because I, I was in a really bad place and I could see myself falling down a very slippery slope if I didn't do something quite quickly to manage it. Um, and I thought, why not? Let's just give it a go. And it was the best thing that I did. Because in fact, I honestly think if everyone was given access to counselling, to support like that, we wouldn't be in the state we are in terms of mental health. Mm. And Absolutely. You know, I know people who've had to wait you know, eight months, nine months after loss before they've seen anyone. That to me is unacceptable. Like you need, you need that support and you need it early on. Actually, you need it at any time you feel is right. Um, so I managed to get somebody who came to me for an hour a week at my home. Um, she saw me on my own. She offered counseling to my husband on his own. Um, and he didn't want it on his home, but we did joint um, joint support together. And she even went to my, so my daughter really struggled with this. You know, at the age of three, it's hard to get your head around death. Um, she even oh, went yeah. to my nursery and she did play therapy with her. So once a week, she would go there for an hour and they would do play therapy. And that meant you know, just trying to put in place tools to help her feel more comfortable with opening up because it's hard, you know, I can't answer questions about why things happen. I mean, I was like, why has it happened? You know, how do you go through that? (laughs) But they are are really raw with their language. (laughs) They are. As it is, right? They're literal. um, You know, even now, I mean, you know, Shayan's very much integrated into our family. And, you know, Neva speaks about him all the time. And at the beginning of every school term, I have to prep her new teacher to say she will talk about 
her brother, she will just rawly say he's dead. And this is the messaging that we've used with her. If you could just follow that, that would be great. Because I never want her to think that she can't speak about him. Um, so that's what our bereavement support looked like. And again, I am one of the lucky ones who got access to that. And I am forever grateful to my GP. And so much so that I've trained to become a bereavement support volunteer through my surgery as well. Mm. Um, just offer a bit back. Um, you know, yeah. I know they... And at a time like this with COVID, I think it's going to be something that, that is definitely necessary. Yeah, because it's increasing now. I think everyone's getting a bit more of awareness of grief and bereavement now since the global pandemic. And um, I think that's great that you want to train as a bereavement volunteer. Uh, I think most people start when they've gone through such an ordeal and such an experience so that's brilliant I'm kind of curious about your group uh, in your GP practice was that specific to pregnancy loss or just bereavement in general bereavement in general so okay in general um I didn't feel and actually after her being trained I I feel bereavement yes there is things specific to baby loss and you know you can argue that you know, you need specific counselling for baby loss. But I found that all, everything she covered with me, you know, more than anything, you need someone who can just listen. Mm. You know, if that means they sit silently with you because you want to be silent, that's cool. If it means that they just sit and, you know, empathise with you a little bit, that's good as well. You kind of need that at the beginning, just to understand your own feelings. And, you know, I felt that it was enough. I mean, what I got with her, it's, it was completely enough. Um, you know, I didn't feel that I needed anything, you know, additionally, just to cover the baby loss piece, you know, this was more than enough for me. Mm. Um, you know, I know people where they haven't had good experiences in their loss, you know, negligence cases, that kind of thing, where, you know, it's going to take more than just bereavement support to, to help you get around that. But yeah. for me, it was just what I needed. Yeah. And I think if something works for you, that's it, really. There's, you know, you don't need to question that. And it's important that it works for you, whatever that may look like, which kind of um, uh, brings me to ask um, the volunteer that you had um did it matter if they came from the same cultural background or that kind of understand some of the barriers faced in South Asian communities you know it didn't to me actually so I had an English lady who came to me and she understood the stuff that I was saying but and I don't know whether I, I, I don't know, I didn't feel at any point that I couldn't just be honest with her about some of the cultural things even and what was nice is that it was never that she frowned upon it, which you would expect sometimes because, you know, some of our cultural stuff is a little bit out there. <laughs> yeah. It, it can be. Um, she just understood and embraced what I was saying and kind of just, yeah, just understood. Like, you know, there are differences. And, you know, sometimes I would say something and I'd be like, does that sound weird? And she's like, no, it doesn't. It's your feeling. And, it's what you're going through. You know, you share whatever you want. This is safe space. And it just made me comfortable. Say that what was funny is, you know, when I did my training, um, I was asking them, had they looked at the different cultures? So maybe approached mosques or temples just to see if they could set up groups within, within mm. the 
depths of worship. Brilliant. And they, they had, but what had happened is when they, I think it was a mosque that they were working with, and what they had found is people were going to be bereavement support for families, and they ended up like cooking and cleaning when they went to visit. Oh, and God, I, that's funny. Because I was like, that's so, that, that's what we do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is how we get through it, is cooking and cleaning. That's brilliant. I love that you suggested that to them, though, because I think it's really important to go to places of worship and communities. Yeah, can, I mean, can you imagine if they had these set up in, your, you know, in the bigger temples and even the smaller temples and the mosques and stuff, you could really hit a lot of people who wouldn't have ever thought, of, because, you know, counselling is almost like a swear word sometimes in our culture. Mm. You know, people see it as, it's almost like you're admitting something is wrong. And I always mm. say, well, you are admitting something's wrong because you need help. That's the whole point. We need to stop this whole what's perfection and, you know, understand that, life isn't perfect like that and we need to be able to address some of these things that happen to us yeah we need to talk more openly about our emotions and just process these difficult emotions that we have and there isn't a taboo because we often get stigmatized for being vulnerable I think and I, I don't know where that comes from and it's it just seems very silly to me definitely yeah, which kind of, I wanted to ask you about the aunties on the doorstep. I don't know if that's the right term to use. But how do you deal with them, all the external hangers-on and the, the aunties and the community? Do you have a way? So, okay, so I, I'm really raw now with people. Um, you know, gone are the days of just going, yes, yes. And well, actually, it depends who it is. Mm. Sometimes I still just do the yes, yes and my head thing. But at, at the beginning, it it was really hard because again, there's an expectation for how you should manage a loss like this. You know, there was a lot of people, I mean, so we didn't see anybody, but what we did decide to do um, a couple of days after the funeral, because there were so many people who kept wanting to see us, we hired a hall and we had like um, pudgeons, so, you know, devotional music there. So that way people could come and pay respects, but we didn't have to talk to them, was my logic. <laughs> I like it, yeah. I remember walking, so we had people come from, you know, across the country, and one of my aunties came over, and um, she literally wailed in my arms, oh. like wailed. She's like, it was like proper crying wailing. And I was comforting her, and I looked at Kevin, my husband, afterwards, and I just went, if this is what this is going to be like today, I'm going home. Like, uh, well, how am I comforting someone else right now? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, everyone feels the need to give you advice. Mm. So you've got to look at the bright side. At least you were pregnant. You can just try again. Oh, that sounds awful. All of those things. And you know, toxic positivity, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. And at the time, you're kind of listening to it and you're looking at them like, are these words even coming out of your mouth? Like, I, I understand. Um, my mum had to drag me away from one quite old lady, actually, who was basically 
saying to me, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, you shouldn't be crying. Why are you crying for? You know, these things happen. And I was ready to let loose at her. And I remember my mum had to pull me away. And she was like, you need to understand the background that women of that age have been through. She goes, I'm not excusing it. It's not okay. And I will talk to her. But they've come from families of like, 15 to 20 children and for them losing a few along the way she goes it's going to sound awful but it was so normal because you know you would lose one and then you would just get pregnant in the next year you'd and that's how they've that's the background they've come from and she goes and it, yeah it makes it hard now because they're not living in those times now but they've still got that mentality and you have to understand that that's where some of these comments come from and I got it and I did understand it because mom was right right they've they've just grown up in a completely different culture that's it that's it you are a product of your own society really right. and your environment and that that is their mentality and I'm always a bit kinder to the older generation because I don't know what their struggles are I think their struggles are different to ours but then at the same time there is a bit of a toxic positivity that oh you'll have a baby again oh you'll be happy again and really you just want to be feel seen and witnessed yeah definitely and you want someone just to acknowledge the loss like even you know we speak about him every day we do things to remember him and someone once said to me you should stop all of this now and I just looked at them and I said stop all of what and they were like, you know, you need to just get on with your life. And I said, oh, I gosh. am. Life. And then I just looked to them and I remember just saying, which one of your children could you live without? Mm -hmm. And they just gave me this blank look. And I was like, exactly. It's not, it's unthinkable, isn't it? I said, so I'm living without my child right now. So, you know, excuse me if I have to do anything, everything and anything in my power to keep that memory alive, because I will. As a mother, you just you were always going to do that because my biggest fear is that I'm going to forget him one day. Absolutely, Priya. That's such an insensitive comment. It is unthinkable. So I, I'm wondering now, um, what do you struggle with the most in your grief? I mean, we, we talked about some insensitive comments people make, or is there something else in your experience within the community that you'd like to reflect on? So I think what I struggle with the most is making people, being able to speak freely about Shayan. So as an example, you know, just the other day, we were out on a walk with a new mum at school and she said, oh, how many children do you have? And, you know, I really struggle with that question. Mm. Um, Sometimes you think, shall I just say two, just to not have an awkward conversation? But then I always kick myself off to thinking, it's like I'm ashamed of Shayan. Why would I do that? So I just said, I have three, actually. And she said, oh, oh, wow, that's amazing. And so she, then she was asking me, you know, how old they were. And I said, I've got an eldest um, daughter, a younger daughter. And, you know, we lost my son, Shayan, in the middle. And that awkwardness that comes as soon as I've said it, it's just unreal. Um, I have to do what's right for me, and I've learned this along the way, that if it makes other people uncomfortable, that's up to them, um, and that's their issue, not mine. Um, mm. If I feel that I need to talk about him, if I feel that I need to mention him, 
then that's what I'm going to do. So I think, and you know, and as I said, we've integrated Cheyenne into the family um, in a big way. You know, we talk about him every day. Um, So I think it's other people. And I always worry sometimes because I think for my daughters, especially, like even when my eldest speaks about him in certain environments, you can see the awkwardness that she goes through. And, you know, we try really hard to, to make it just a norm. And I think we forget that society sometimes isn't ready for that norm. Yeah. So how do we normalize it? Is it just having conversations like this? I think you kind of have to, right? You have to keep talking. And that's the only way that you're going to once you're comfortable with something I think other people just feel more comfortable about it Mm. so we do try and just integrate him as much as we can in conversations and the things that we're doing um we speak about him openly so that people know that it's okay to talk about him you know we're good with that and in fact for somebody who's been through loss saying that baby's name saying that child's name is the best thing that you can do for them because Mm nothing brings us more joy nothing brings me more joy than when someone just remembers him so what's the one thing you want people to know about grief so i think people need to realize grief is relative to the person going through it and whether that is somebody who's experienced a loss at six weeks of a pregnancy to somebody who's experienced a loss of a child at the age of 10 through to somebody who's lost a parent or an uncle or whatever the person is going through is relative to them. There is no, you should be feeling like this or you should be feeling like that. We need to just be respectful of what someone else is going through and what they're feeling. You know, it's not up to us to judge whether that's right or wrong exactly everyone's grief is their own and everyone has their own experience I couldn't agree with you more so so why do you think there is a silence around baby loss specifically because it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable and it's not the norm and people hate being uncomfortable I think people hate talking about it because it's the unthinkable Um, people also feel a sense of I'm going to upset the person if I mention it so I'm not going to mention it Um, what's fabulous is actually the baby loss community that is out there it is fierce and it is supportive and it is just full of nothing but love like Mm -hmm. for example I can go over to Instagram and just put something out there to say I'm having a really bad day and I will know my inbox will be flooded with messages from at least 20 different people asking if I'm okay and if there's anything that they can do. Strangers, the majority of them, who just understand what loss is and what baby loss is and what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic, you know, that support is something that is great to have. Yeah, and that support is like no other. And interestingly there, you say strangers. That's the one thing I found from podcasting that a lot of my support has come from strangers more than anyone else. Um, and that was a real learning thing for me because I was like, whoa. And it, it's, it's, it's just amazing, really amazing. And you're right that the, it is fierce and it's really important that we keep breaking down these barriers and 
um, the silence that surrounds this topic because it is a very silenced topic. Before we move on to Gratefulness Challenge, um, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your lived experiences with me and remembering Baby Shay and with me today. I, I really appreciate your presence on my podcast. How can people reach you on social media and your fundraising channels? So can I just talk a bit about the fundraising? Is that okay? Yes, please do. Yeah. So after we lost, um, I just had this thing that I needed to do something to put a legacy together for Cheyenne. Um, I've been really militant about it, actually. And there's quite a few things that we've done. So right at the beginning, we work with a charity called the Sai Shruti Charitable Trust, um, and they're actually family friends. So they do a lot of work out in India, in remote parts of India, for children, setting up schools, that kind of thing. So we, um, you know, donated beds to an orphanage school, um, built some water pumps out there. Um, we did a lot of, you know, money gathering. People just wanted to give us money. They wanted to donate something. So we just set this page up to kind of help kids in India. We actually ended up, um, sponsoring a school for life out there now um, so they they get funded with um, their daily supplies uniform that kind of thing um, on a yearly basis um, so we've done that part and then we also decided that there was something in this country that we wanted to do and that was to help the hospital where we had Shayan. so that was Hillingdon Hospital um, and we're helping them build a maternity bereavement suite um, so I didn't have access to that kind of a room. And just to explain a little bit, the suite is kind of an annex to the maternity ward, um, but it's a bit more private and it will allow a family just to spend that time with their baby without hearing the screams of other babies around, without hearing mums going into labour, without that fear that they were going to step out of their room and, you know, bump into a new mum with a baby because those things are really real. I can't mm. tell. I was petrified that I was going to step out of my room and just see babies everywhere. I, I, it, was, it was horrible. Um, you know, although the care I received was, was great, the room, it was cold, sterile. My husband kind of had to make up a makeshift bed next to me with chairs just so that he could spend the night with us. Um, so a maternity, a bereavement suite will have like a double bed there that the family can spend time with the baby. Um, you know, you can spend as long as you want there. Um, you can really make some some memories with your child. Um so we're helping them build that. And, you know, I've said that I've committed to trying to raise £50,000 for them. Um, we've managed to hit 30000 Wow. Um, we're on track of reaching our goal this year. But then obviously with COVID, um, all of our events got cancelled. So we had to start thinking of new and in innovative ways of fundraising, which has been really difficult at this time because... You know, people are going through so much financially and, you know, there's lots of people are going through so much with this pandemic. And, you know, sometimes charitable giving is really the last thing that people want to really think about, especially when they're questioning how they're going to survive day to day um, mm. in the economy. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're um, on a mission to get to 50,000. Um, and yeah, that's a, a lot of our fundraising. And how can we reach the page? Yep. Yeah, so 
um, on just giving the the link is Hillingdon Hospital's Bereavement Suite. If you search for that, my Just Giving page is there. I'm on Instagram as at My Rainbow Baby and on Facebook too at My Rainbow Baby. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but I don't check it. So Instagram and Facebook are probably the best ways to contact me. Um, and yeah. Lovely, lovely. And um, this bereavement suite, if you don't mind me asking, is so that would just have one bed in it and it's one suite that are dedicated to bereavement? Yes, yeah, so it will be like an annex to the maternity unit. So it won't only just be a room and with a bathroom, there'll be like a kitchen area, there'll be an area where family, where your you know, extended family can be, there'll be a little outdoor area. It's kind of really thoughtfully put together. Um, just with everything that you know a grieving family would need to really mm. make as special as it can be I always say to people that those hours after loss are just the most important because it's literally the only time I mean I always kick myself that I didn't take enough pictures that I didn't do enough that I didn't take enough videos that I didn't you know all of these things do come back to me um and I just think if they have this space, it just makes it so much nicer to create those memories with your baby. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it's really important that we have these bereavement suites within the hospitals because I often read that they're just, they don't have that because of funding and that facility is not available. But I've even seen it on other wards where there's, there's not even a a room where you can go to when some anyone's been bereaved um and it's really quite sad so I think it's wonderful that you set up this fundraising campaign and the work that you do in India and I hope that everyone that's listening if you I know it's hard times if you can uh contribute something every every little helps uh so this brings us to the gratefulness challenge would you like to go first or shall I I mean do you know what the gratefulness challenge is I think I read about it. You go first. Okay. Okay. So um, on my podcast, I introduced the gratefulness challenge. It's just a, a moment to kind of talk about what you're grateful for in, in the here and now that's personal to you. And yeah, it could be anything big or small. So yeah, I'll go. I think it'll be very short from me today. I mean, we talked about being uncomfortable and about silence topics and I think generally in life, we, we are so awkward and uncomfortable when it comes to talking about real issues. But when we talk about Netflix or sex or something else, you know, we, we will talk about that so openly and it's not an issue. But when it comes to something that is a fact of life, like death, we get awkward. And I just want to say that I am grateful for the fact that we are comfortable with being uncomfortable here on this podcast and I'm just grateful to everyone that contributes and I think it, you know this is a learning space the, the sheer openness and reflection that we have here I'm just so grateful for that because it's not something that I have ever experienced anywhere else other than in this space and can't thank everyone that's contributed enough um that have come on the podcast and shared their lived experiences. So that's what I'm grateful for today. And you're doing a really good job with opening those conversations up. Thank you, Priya. Thank you. So what am I grateful for in this 
space right now. So for me, it would be my journey. So yes, losing Cheyenne was absolutely horrific and tragic. And yes, I would do anything to bring him back. But I'm so grateful for what he has done for us, not only for me, but for us as a family. We are suddenly so much more mindful about our time, about our love, about and grateful for the fact that we have health, that we have each other. Um, I'm grateful for the fact I've met so many incredible people who I just wouldn't have met had it not been for this journey. It's made me, it's changed me. He's changed me as a person, you know, and for the better, he's, he's opened me up to things that I, I would have never even thought about. And I, I am so grateful for that, I really am. Well, that was Priya Vara. She joined me during Baby Loss Awareness Week to talk about her son, Shayan, who was born sleeping. What an incredible woman. As she was sharing her experience with me so vulnerably, I was there in the room with her just imagining everything that she had gone through and continues to. And just how incredible the way that she coexists with her grief today. Let's wish Priya continued success and love with everything that she does. Obviously, there's a bit of dialogue there about cultural barriers and education pieces around pregnancy and baby loss that need to be addressed. I hope that today's episode gives us some food for thought. I hope that it drives some change uh, in some way. A massive thank you to everyone that tuned in. As always, until next time, I'm your host, Kolsima Ali.